All right, so Amos is on page 999 in, your in my Bible. 874 Amos 1-1. Where am I going? After Joel. Amos 1-1 tells us a little bit. says, The words of Amos, who is among the shepherds of Tekoa, when he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So a rather large kind of uh, table-setting verse there. So we know right away that the author is Amos. Amos. Where is he? Tekoa. Tekoa, yeah. Among the shepherds of Tekoa, which is in Judah. It's south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So it is in Judah. It's part of that we're in the, the part of the divided kingdom, right? So Judah's down in the southern kingdom, and then the northern kingdom has the ten tribes up there. Um, and the subject, he says, is it's a vision, or it says the words of Amos, which he saw. So he saw, so it's a vision of him seeing things, just like other people have seen visions, concerning Israel. And so he's in Judah, he's in the southern kingdom, and it looks like he's getting a vision of what's happening or going to happen in the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, the Bible splits that up at this point between the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. If you ever read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll go cross-eyed because they talk about all of the kings. Barb's nodding. You'll go cross-eyed because you talk about all of the kings of Judah and all of the kings of Israel, and it's very hard to keep them straight. I myself a table. You, you really need to. Really and some of the names are similar. Too. Yeah, exactly. So it's like they change one letter. Yeah, yeah. Oh exactly. They change one letter. <laughs> yep, yep. We do have some clues about the dates. Um, so if he's talking about the king of Judah being King Uzziah and the king of Israel being King Jeroboam, uh, those we know through records are about the 8th century BC. And so that puts him with his counterparts, people like Isaiah and Hosea, and Joel. So kind of right where we have been before. Right? He also says this is two years before the earthquake. Nobody really knows which particular earthquake he's talking about. It's, it, it's, it's in a place where there's a lot of earthquakes, so it could be anything, could be something monumental, could not be. But I did read one theme that wanted to sum up the whole book of Amos, and this was how they summed up the whole book of Amos. It said, Yahweh is angry because his people are getting rich by oppressing their own kinsmen and despising the righteous and his word. Mm-hmm. Yahweh is angry because his people are getting rich by oppressing their own kinsmen. So their own people they're oppressing. And they despise righteousness and his word. I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good summary statement. So as far as our outline, we've got nine chapters here to chop up. Um, the first chapter predominantly talks about judgment on the nations. And again, we've seen this kind of time and time again. God is sovereign over the nations. So therefore, God gets to judge other nations. It's his law. It's his world, right? So he talks about Damascus. He talks about Gaza. He talks about Tyre, uh, Edom, Ammonites, and Moab. And you see it's kind of the same kind of Hebrew classic poetry, all kind of set in the same way. And he's pronouncing judgment on all of those nations. In chapter 2, 
he turns to judgment on Judah. Uh, in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, so exactly how he's been starting the other judgments, and for four, very poetic, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their father walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So why is Judah being judged? <clears throat> what did they do? They rejected the instruction of the Lord, it says in mine, and yep. not kept his statutes. Yep, so they rejected his law and instruction. They've not kept his statutes. They've, they've been led astray. And he's going to send a fire. Is a fire a good thing? No. No. Fire usually means judgment. Yep. Usually means really bad things. You don't want God to send the fire. So he's sending the fire on Judah, and that was their, their sin. Then he turns to judgment on Israel. And as you note, the section of judgment on Judah is two verses, and the section on judgment on Israel is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, like 11 verses. So a lot more that he is judging Israel for. It's interesting that it says 3, even 4, yep. or 3 and 4, but yet I count 3, right? They rejected the instruction, they didn't keep the statutes and the, and the lies that their ancestors followed. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely poetic. Yeah. There's poetic license so, there. But in Proverbs, they'll have four if yeah. they do that, you know? Yep. So. Yep. The, the poet gets to take artistic license, right? Uh, so he can do three or four. Yep. Yep. Okay. It's more of a saying. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of the same pattern that repeats yeah. over and over again. It's just different, different judgments, right? But in chapter 2, verse 6, he really starts with the judgment on Israel. And he starts again, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Which is the same thing he's been saying all along. Same pattern. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those that have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and whose was it, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed the fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it indeed, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Okay. Very vivid in country. So what kinds of things do we see God being very upset at Israel for, the northern kingdom? Making the Nazarites drink wine. 
Making the Nazarites drink well, wine. They made okay. Their hair too. I don't know. Why was that? Why was that bad? Well, the Nazarites were dedicated to God. Yes. So they were not allowed to cut their hair, drink, and there was one other thing. Yep. That I can't like Samson, right? Mm -hmm. Samson. Yep. So yeah, they had a special vow before God that they wouldn't do certain things, and that was two of those things, right? And so if they're making them drink wine, what do they think of the vows that they took before God? They don't really consider those very high. They're encouraging them to break their vows before God. Always bad. What did they say to the prophets? Oh yes, we want to hear about the, the law, the, the Lord. What is the Lord telling us? Is that what they said? No, they said, don't prophesy. We don't want to hear it. We don't care what the Lord says. We don't want to hear about their sins. Yeah, we don't want to hear about our sins. <laughs> yeah. la, 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 la. Just teach me uh, all about how wonderful I am. What about, what other sins do we see? Well, it's not a sin, but I love the imagery of press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves are pressed down. I just love it. It's like putting in a book and, you know. Oh, yeah. You're not getting up. You're just going to be squished down. Yeah, and that, that theme comes up at the end, right? They're like, don't care who you are. If you're the fastest guy in the world, if you have the fastest horse in the world, it doesn't matter. You're not going to escape me. I'm, I'm coming after you, right? No matter how strong you are, no matter how good you are with your bow, I'm still going to judge you. I'm still going to find you. That's what the Lord says. Um, there are there's sexual sins in there, which is some graphic language in there. Um, yeah, it's very gross. Um, but there's also there's idolatry, right? They say they they lay themselves down beside every altar. Yeah, and the, the sexual sin could have something to do with the idolatry too. Very true. Yep, yep absolutely. Yep, a lot of that was intertwined. Yep. But one of the yeah. biggest things that they're in trouble for is the way they treat the poor and their kinsmen. So verse 7 says, yep. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So if someone's afflicted, can you help me? No, get away from me. Right. Yeah, and they're also selling people into slavery or betraying them. And yep. could be either way. Yeah, but they sell the righteous for silver. Yep. Yeah. Instead of honoring them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Israel's in a lot of trouble. They've done a lot of things that are wrong. Israel generally, you know, more sinful than Judah. Right? Judah was still the one that's eternally going to have the promise anyway, because the line of David's going to come through there, and the Messiah is going to come through there. And if you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll see that ninety-nine percent of the kings of of Israel are evil and very, very evil. So yeah, so they have a lot more uh, to answer for. But there's kind of one more thing, and it's in chapter 3 that might be the key indictment. Um, he says this, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that are brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. What is he saying there? He broke the pattern. There's no more... One step, two step, three step, four. Like no more, you know, he's, he's gotten out of Hebrew poetry now. What is he saying? Why, why, is, that, why is that set apart and seemingly more offensive to the Lord? They broke the covenant. Yeah, they broke the covenant. It was like, kind of like who they were. 
like God's like, look, guys, like you are the special people. You are the special people. You are my people of all of the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. I picked you, right? I created you, and this is how you repay me by breaking your covenant. And that's the. It's a big therefore. Therefore, because you rejected me and you were so, you were my my wife, right? I will punish you for all of your iniquities. God says you are in covenant with me, therefore that comes with very heavy responsibilities. Um, What does that say about God's church today? What does that say about God's people today? Do we have special responsibilities? Yes. How so? What might they be? Honor God, not have idols. Yeah. Um, You know, to progress in our sanctification. Yeah. You know, not not sinning. Yep. All Um, that. Yeah. yeah. All of that stuff. To be the image. To be legit. Yeah. There's almost a a public witness to it. Walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Exactly. There's a public witness to it, right? Because Israel was God's people, and all the nations knew that, right? And yet, they turned from their God. Yeah. Right. That's the Travis tragedy of it all, mm-hmm. right? But then also the church is God's people. And so of all people, we need to reflect who God really is and what his people really look like. Otherwise, we're in the same boat as Israel. So yeah, we are his people. We are called to be his. And we have some responsibilities to make sure that we are living in a way that lines up with our identity. It's a witness to the world. Hmm. Um, in chapter 3 he goes on with these kind of poetic rhetorical questions Uh, he drops a huge line at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3 does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it he's saying like do you think all of these things are just happening outside of my watch Hmm. you think I haven't not necessarily sent this or allowed this right and so, again, just it's kind of a jaw-dropping uh, statement of his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And if we jump over to chapter 5, you'll see the same thing uh, in verse 8 of chapter 5. He who made the Pleiades and, and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. So God's completely sovereign. And sometimes we think like, oh yeah, that's really good about the good things, but he's he's also completely sovereign over judgment and disaster and evil. Bless you. Verse 10 sounds like it could be today. Verse 10 sounds like it could be today. They that hate him reproves uh, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. They, mine says a little, a little easier. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and despise the one who speaks with integrity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's true today. So one of the major themes is the sovereignty of God over all things. But another major theme is the mercy of God. Let's look at another repeating pattern here in chapter 4. Look at verse 6. I gave you 
cleanness of teeth <laughs> in all your cities. I gave you dentists. No. And lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. So he's basically saying you had no food. And you didn't, yeah. you didn't return to me. Is that why their teeth were clean? Because they had yep. no yeah. There wasn't anything stuck in them okay. from eating sure anything. When I yep. that, I yeah, mine even translated it, I, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat. Yeah. That's okay. how it says. There you go. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. Again, God's sovereignty. One field would have rain, and on the field which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. Mm -hmm. He's going to go on with this again. I struck you with blight and mildew. Yet you did not return to me. I sent pestilence towards you. I killed your young men with the sword, and yet you did not return to me. Kept going. I overthrew some of you, some of your cities, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Guess what? Yet you did not return to me. Over and over and over again, he says, yet you did not return to me. Um, very stubborn. <laughs> He says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Mm. Again, for behold, he who forms the mountains and yeah. creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, <laughs> yeah. who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. We see another theme, really the mercy of God, right? He still is saying, I gave you all these things intentionally so that you would stop and turn around and think, wow, maybe I should repent. But yet, hard-headed, stiff-necked. Right? I'm sorry, Tony. What? Oh. Stiff-necked. Physically, not spiritually. Not spiritually. Good to know. Good to know. But we can think in our lives, maybe sometimes when God has allowed really hard things, right? And how often do we think, man, is he really trying to get my attention or what? Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's sovereign over everything. That's why he gets your attention. Good. Yeah. Yep. Chisel yeah. Yep. When you don't have anything left, right? And you're kind of like, okay, I'll trust you. I'm not distracted anymore because I don't have much left. Right? And the idea is, yeah, return to me. I'm still here. I've sent this to wake you up. And so in and of that is God's mercy. He gave them time and time again. He gave them chances. And, and later on in chapter 5, he, he can kind of feel the language that he says, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. In verse 6 of chapter 5, Seek the Lord and live. He's like, guys, just turn around and seek me and repent. Again, he doesn't give us his law as a way to take joy from our lives. He gives the law as a way for us to live. Right? I was listening to one podcast and they were talking about uh, that one verse that says, uh, he who does the law will live by them. And like, I always take that accent to be, he who does the law will live by them, right? Like here, 
seek me and live. Like the point of the law is to give life, not to take life away, right? To protect us from sin and bad things, not to take things away from our life. But the, the guy on the podcast says, uh, he who has your law will live by them. Yeah. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> it just felt a little too legalistic to me. Like that's not the point to crack the whip and say, obey my law. The point is to live. God gives it for our good and our protection and our joy. So yeah, we see the mercy of God as another key theme. And we can all think in our lives, how many chances does the Lord give us, right? To repent over and over and over again. I can remember coming to the Lord and I didn't hear an audible voice, so don't think I'm that crazy. But I just felt this like time and time again falling on my face. And I felt almost like the words of like, are you ready yet? And I literally was like, nope, I still got this. So are you saying those in the Bible who heard the audible voice of the Lord are crazy? (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't an audible voice. It was just, it was a weird thing. It was like just an impression. I don't know what you would call it. But after every time I was like, no, you know, stiffened my neck towards the Lord and got back up again. That was my voice you were hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Good (laughs) mail. The Lord... I have a similar voice. (laughs) Exactly. The Lord uses all things. I'm sure it was Mel's voice, and I'm sure I was ignoring that as well. But but time and time again, you know, falling on my face, and then feeling, are you ready yet? Like, I'm here. Just like, turn around. No, I want to. I got this. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes these might make someone more stiff necked because they're like, oh, again? Yeah. Oh, for a while. Yeah. You know, instead yeah. of turning and, and just finally submitting. Well, that, not to get completely theological nerdy, but God uses that thing, that very thing, to, to whoever is are his, they will eventually turn. They're, they will eventually soften. But you're right. <laughs> who aren't his will continue to harden their heart against right. the Lord. They'll continue to put callous over callous over callous and become more bitter That's against the, the Lord. That's the choice, yeah. And so it's, yep. you know, he uses, he uses the same trials to either harden those who are not his or else soften those who are his. And so he's sovereign over that as like well. Jonah versus Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Jonah, and the Lord Jonah relented Pharaoh. eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Jonah, yeah. It was a soft scab. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a callus, it was a soft scab. Yeah. We also see, and we've seen flashes of it already, another key, thing, key theme is the terrible judgment of God. Uh, yeah. Verse 4, chapter 12, we just read it. Uh, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Wait, where are you? Oh, chapter 4, verse 12, sorry. Oh, the other way around. Yeah, you jumped ahead. I did, sorry. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, Therefore, I'm going to do this to you because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Um, And if we jump to 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Right? Like the day of the Lord... We saw that in Joel, right? Over and over again, it's judgment, mm-hmm. right? In whatever phase of redemptive history we're going to be in, right? He's, he's this, this day of the Lord as he's judging Israel. And he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
It's a terrible thing. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, right, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? So another theme is really the terrible judgment of God. But I thought it was interesting in verse 18, right? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It, you know, a lot of people walking around today obsessed with the end times mm-hmm. and all of that. And it kind of struck me. It's funny, like, you don't really want that. I mean, I know what you're saying. Yes, we get to go home, but you don't really want that, you know. Especially for our all of our unsaved uh, friends and loved ones, you know. Yeah, we want Jesus to come, but it's also going to be terrifying. Very scary. I like 19. He's like, it will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. I like that. Yeah. And then again, rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake. <laughs> it's a bad day. It's a bad day. Yeah. It's that idea of, you know, you can't escape from the judgment, right? Yeah. I think of the Apostle Paul when he had that shipwreck and he, he washed up on the island and he was tending the fire and then the snake jumped out and bit him. Yeah. And all the natives were like, well, yeah. he survived the shipwreck, but he's definitely not going to survive that. Yeah. Like judgment came after him anyway. Like judgment's always going to find you, except they were wrong because Paul survived. But yeah, that idea of the judgment of God, you can't hide from it. Right? Yeah, so we see the, the terrible judgment of God. And then in verse 24 of chapter 5, it says... Um, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's kind of refreshing. Anyone, anyone know who may have said that in American history? Let justice roll mm-hmm. down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Reagan? Very famous speech. Mm-hmm. It was Martin Luther King. Wow. In the I Have a Dream speech. In his I Have a Dream speech, he quoted Amos 5.24. And he applied it to the civil rights struggle, right? And the justice of it. But again, you think like, okay, you don't really want justice to roll down like waters because God's judgment is a terrible thing, right? Even those who are saved, right, and secure in Christ, it's still going to be terrifying to see that happening, right? I think of the old hymn, It Is Well, and there's one verse that says, When the skies rolled back like a scroll... Even still, it is well with my soul. He's like comforting himself in that in that moment, saying, "I mean, how terrifying is that going to be to see the sky roll back like a scroll?" Even so, it is well with my soul. Why? Because remembering who we are in Christ. But you're still going to have to (laughs) encourage yourself with that because we're all going to be terrified, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, Martin Luther King. Um, And in that, right, he's he kind of co-opted that into the social gospel a little bit. I mean, he's not talking about the justice for the oppressed people. He's talking about God's... Amos is talking about God's justice. Right? And, and we've got to be careful of that, too. I'm going to hit a little bit of that Sunday in uh, Romans. We don't want to truncate the gospel to be just like a, a social justice gospel. Like The justice here is God's justice against sin and rebellion. Um, chapter 7, continuing the theme of judgment, he has a strange illustration in verse 7 of chapter 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, 
with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. I don't know why that always makes me giggle. <laughs> it's just like, he just said it. What do you mean, what do I see? He just told me it was a plumb line. Like, what? <laughs> okay, maybe it was just me. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them, and the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. What is a plumb line? So it was a survey mark. Okay. He's dividing. Well, he could be dividing. Uh, it's a plumb line also makes things straight. Yeah, so, so a plumb line most of the time is a, is a string right. with a big weight on the bottom right. with a big pointy thing on the yeah. end, right? And so if you drop that, it's just going to show you true dead, dead straight, yeah. right? Dead vertical. Yep, dead vertical. So yeah, when you're building a wall, it's generally a good idea to have some measure of straightness. Right, because otherwise you tip right over. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if it's a stone wall. Yeah. That could be really deadly. Yeah. So again, he's saying, um, I'm the plumb line here. My law is the standard. My law is, is what's true, right? And he's setting this plumb line in the midst of his people, Israel, and they're failing. Right? Mm -hmm. They're not straight. They're not holding the standard. And so therefore, I'll never pass by them again, and all of these threats will, will become realities. God measures Israel against his perfect standard, and they fail. And that, and we think like, okay, how do we balance that, right? Because we said, even as Christians, we have an obligation and a calling to be legit. How do we measure that with, or how do we compare that with the grace of the gospel? How do we balance those two things, right? Because we do have a plumb line. We still do have a plumb line. It's the holiness of God. But yet, no one's going to be perfectly holy. So how do we balance that with the gospel? Any thoughts on how we do that practically? Because we compare ourselves to God's law, and we're like, well, we fail. I mean, we just spent 11 weeks in the Ten Commandments, right? We all know how far, how far that's we... That's why the sacrifice of Jesus is so important. Yeah. You know, so we have to uh, trust in... God's forgiveness and His, his grace, grace and yeah. yeah, and 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 you know for um, for our faith in Jesus that, that He sees us as He and, and that He keeps His promises, yeah, because you know we're so we're depending on Him, Him being true to His word as well. Yep, yep, absolutely. Good point. Were any of us alive when Jesus died on the cross? No. Nope. 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 You were. Nope. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh. Whoa. It wasn't a trick question, actually. Uh -oh. I know you guys thought I was going to trick you, but I really well, Cindy thinks I was with the dinosaurs, so, you know. <laughs> so what am I trying to say there? If we weren't alive when Jesus died on the cross, then all of our sins were future sins. Yep. Right? So he looked at us and said, I'm going to, they're mine. I'm going to die for every single one of the stupid things they're going to do, you know, 2,000 years from now. Yeah, we've done a lot of them. <laughs> so we've got to trust in the sacrifice of Christ, as Ken said, but realize that, yes, all of our sins were paid for. Yeah. God knew them all in advance, and he paid for them and atoned for them on the cross. But obviously, God's will for us is not sin. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like his death was sufficient to cover all. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he doesn't have to go back to the cross. Like, you know, yeah. I break that one millionth sin. Right. 
He's like, well, you were only good for a million, so yeah. I don't know what we're going to do with this one. you have to spend a little time in purgatory, I guess. No, his death is sufficient for all of the sins. Right? And that's a comforting thought. But yet, God's will for us is never sin. Like he doesn't, We are not, we are to avoid sin. We are to mortify sin. We are to grow in that. So it's an identity thing, right? We have to balance our identity that Christ has won for us on the cross with our calling to be legit and be holy. Well, the fault line can be something to strive for. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. you can see it. It is. And you're yep. like, okay, it well, is that's something what I... to strive for. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the, the goal is that. That's the map aspect of God's right. law. Want to do that. Yeah. Right? right? God's law is our map. It shows us what we have to do. Right? right. It's like... Those are those are our, our growth guidelines there. The yeah, but great point. In the mirror. Yep, yep. Uh, another key theme is that he then takes issue with their worship. Right. Look at chapter five, <coughs> and starting in verse twenty-one of chapter five. Here's some encouraging words. I hate, I despise your feasts. <coughs> I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. <laughs> to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. He says, instead, do what you're supposed to do, right? Let justice roll down like waters. Look at that. I mean, look at the, the idea of... Um, yeah. I can't worship. stand the stench of your solemn assembly, it says here in <laughs> verse 21. In my translation. You guys are up there on the worship team, like, yeah. playing your hearts yeah. out, and God's like, this song's terrible. Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> Sounds like garbage. <laughs> and he's not talking about musical quality. He's talking about, you know, the idea of your hearts are yeah. not where they need to be, mm. right? You can sacrifice all the animals you want. I don't want them. Keep them. And we can fall into that trap, too, of kind of legalism where we're like, well, we just go to church and God is happy with right. us. Check the box and yep. you're done. The box. Mm -hmm. God's like, I don't want you to check the box. No. I don't want your hearts. Right? Stop with your church attendance and your good deeds and your <laughs> giving money and all of that stuff. Uh, that's not going to make me happy. What makes me happy is you obeying me with your whole heart. Mm -hmm. Right? Then, sure, do all those other things. But don't bother doing all those other things yeah, if your heart does not. <laughs> so yeah uh, chapters 8 and 9 go into big detail of um, the, de the horror of God's judgment which we've spent enough time on right? <laughs> chapter 8 so many dead bodies they're thrown everywhere he's really yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable but it ends again on a very positive note in chapter 9 Oh, it, uh, by the way, just chapter 7, it looks like the priests are telling him not to stop prophesying, too. Um, chapter 7, verse 16. Okay. Um, the land can, uh, you know, Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. 
The land cannot endure all his words. Yeah. For Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by, the, die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile. And he goes on and on. He says to Amos, go away, you seer. He says, he sends it down to Judah. Go, yeah, go, go to prophesy. Judah and prophecy <laughs> there. Yeah, get out of here. You know? We're tired yeah, of your he truth. He goes on a, on a rant against We're tired of your here. bad news. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to hear your bad conviction. news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to hear it. Yep. Fourteen, nine, fourteen. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. Yeah, that's where we're headed. So at the end of chapter nine, right? Look at verse eleven in chapter nine. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches. Right. So he's going to build up uh, the tribe of David through the Messiah, really, and raise its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Mm -hmm. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on the land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. What do we see there? <clears throat> it's a little bit of uh, good news at the end yeah. of this whole nine chapters of destruction. And it will never be um, uprooted again, right? Yep. It's pointing to something pretty big. Pretty magnanimous, right? The Messiah, the New Covenant. This is quoted in Acts chapter 15 in the New Jerusalem Council and uh, where uh, the writer of Acts quotes this in Acts 15, 16. Uh, I'll start in verse yeah, 15. And this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this I will return I will build up the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Right. So Acts brings this into play saying, guess what? This is fulfilled in the church. The church itself will be the new people of Israel. The church is going to be the rebuilt tent of David that has fallen. And even the Gentiles will be called by my name. So this is fulfilled. The end of, of Amos is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ and quoted in the New Testament in the book of Acts when the church is being born. So Yeah, yeah it's interesting too because it says um, in verse 12, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. Yeah, because at that time there was only Israel and Judah, but all indicates yep, all <laughs> yeah, any nations yeah, many nations every tribe, tongue, and right nation yep yeah yeah. So this is even speaking like for the end times yeah you know as well yeah absolutely. Let's take a look at Obadiah. We only got twenty one verses there. About our remaining time. I don't know. Obi was a man of few words. I don't know what to tell you. Obadiah 
Maybe he says in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah's name means servant or worshiper of the Lord. Again, the date is going to be lumped into the same kind of time period, around the time uh, of exile. Uh, but this one, interestingly enough, is all about Edom. Does anybody remember, remember who Edom was or how Edom came to be? Were they friends of Israel? Where did they come from? Yeah. Relatives, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Esau. Mm -hmm. All right. Jacob and Esau. So this was the Esau side of the fence. Right. All right. Jacob was, was the one who then went on to be the, the father of Israel, one of the patriarchs, right? right. Then Esau went on to be the Edomites. Uh, were they uh, friends of Israel? No, they were not. No, they were not. They had a long history of messing with Israel. A very long history. Yeah. And where we just were in chapter 9, verse 12, right? We just heard that Israel is going to possess Edom. The remnant of Edom is going to be folded in. So it's kind of seemed like there's going to be uh, some sovereignty over Edom that's going to happen. Israel's going to finally get the upper hand. And then, of course, uh, uh, fulfilled in the new covenant, right? Even mm -hmm. those who are called from Edom, right? So Obadiah doesn't address Israel at all. And then this is 21 verses of, of judgment against Edom for who they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, one uh, outline I was looking at broke it up into um, three phases. Verses 1 through 9 is the sentence of coming destruction. And so again, he lays out his case with Edom. He promises judgment. He says, I will make you small among the nations. In verse 2, I will bring you down. In verse 4, uh, verse 6 says, Esau has been pillaged. Verse 8 on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, right? So for all the sins, God is going to judge the nations, and he's going to judge Edom as well in that. And so Obadiah echoes the message Amos had for all the nations surrounding Israel in Amos, especially Amos chapter 1. Remember when Amos chapter 1 had all those uh, nations, the threes and the fours and Tyre and all of that. So all nations and all people are accountable to God for their actions. And so Edom's not getting away with anything. And so, again, this is especially relevant today, right? Um, people still refuse to acknowledge God, and they think they're going to get away with that, but they're actually not. Um, one comment says here, while we may not want to start sharing the gospel by reading from Obadiah, this warning should ring in our ears and spur some zeal in our evangelism. This is the judgment that awaits our friends who do not know the living God. That's true. It's, it's sobering, but it's true. Right? The idea, you can't know the good news unless you know the bad news. Mm -hmm. So 1 through 9 talks about the sentence of coming destruction. 10 through 14 is the actual charge where, guess what? You messed with my people. You oppressed my people. Um, early in the book, God indicts the Edomites, especially for their pride. Verse 3 mentions their pride and also living in the clefts of the rock, which this commentator says is a lofty dwelling right above others. Uh, they lived in the mountains and their capital, which was called Petra, was virtually impenetrable. So they were proud of that. They believed they were unconquerable. And so they taunt, who can bring me back down to the ground? 
And in verse 4, Yahweh says that he will bring them back down to the ground. Right? Verse 3, the last part of verse 3, they, they taunt. Who's going to ever bring me down? We're secure in here. Yahweh says, I will. Right? So they regard themselves very highly, and they're very prideful. But God promises judgment primarily because Edom oppressed God's people. And this is kind of interesting, right? This, we don't really see this so much in the prophets, right? He's coming after the nations for oppressing God's people. Of course, we see God holding Babylon responsible for what they did in, in Assyria. But this is a long feud with Edom <coughs> and Israel, and God's, God's not going to let that go either, right? Um, we have one... You know, one book or 21 verses here specifically written to announce judgment on a pagan nation for how they treated God's people. And so what does that tell us about how much God loves his people? Right? The message is God cares for his own people. Right? In verse 10 and 11, it says, oh, I lost Obadiah. It's pretty easy to go. I was in Jonah already. Uh, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, right, to Israel, shame will cover you, and you'll be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Because what happened is, so the picture of Judah's getting carried away by Babylon and here's Edom on the sidelines. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't happen to a nicer nation. <clears throat> right? See you guys. Have fun in Babylon. Throwing stuff at them. Right? Yeah. And uh, less than 20 years later, Babylon came back and did the same thing to Edom. Wow. And so God doesn't let anybody get away with anything. So he's on the day that you stood there and mocked us. Right? That's going to happen to you too. And it did. So when we think about being discouraged, uh, we think about being persecuted, we think about being mocked for our faith, mm -hmm. and then we have to remember God knows and God cares, and he will vindicate us in the end. Right? If you've ever suffered any persecution or mocking for your faith, or ever felt like your enemies were kind of rejoicing in your downfall, right? God will vindicate you. In that. As long as it was just, right? If you make your own enemies from your own stupid things, I'm not saying he's going to redeem you from that. But. <laughs> so we had the uh, sentence of coming destruction. We had the charge, which is oppressing God's people. Mm -hmm. And last, we have the result, which is the establishment of God's kingdom. In verses 17 through 21. Right. Again, it talks about the day of the Lord in verse 15. Verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and in the house of Joseph a flame, and in the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 19, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. So he's talking again. This is what's going to happen. Israel's 
you're going to actually be victorious. Well, Judah is going to be victorious because that's where the Lord is going to, is going to run his kingdom through. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So in the end, he says, my kingdom will be established. It's going to happen. It's a day of salvation and vindication for those who were once persecuted by God. And Obadiah prophesies that the land of Edom will be uh, conquered by God's kingdom. And we think about, again, uh, as Ken has brought us to once or twice tonight, right? The return of Christ. Mm -hmm. yeah. All of God's enemies, all the people that mock, all the people that stand against God, right? And they stand against us. They really stand against God, yep. hopefully. And the book of Revelation, again, tells us that Christ will return, and that's another day of the Lord. There will be judgment there as well. Um, and there's some pretty scary language, right? But in that scary language, we're reminded that God will not let evil get away with anything. God will have the last word, right? And this persecution is getting closer to home. Yeah. I mean, look what happened at that Christian school this week. Yeah. And the media is defending the, the sure. shooter. Yeah. The trans shooter. Yep. They are not concerned about the families who lost loved ones. Yeah. It's just sad. Yeah, we are seeing, I was actually looking at some of those articles today, we're seeing a militant kind of response to that, that that side feels oppressed, right, and hated on by Christians. So now that side says, let's rise up right. against the Christians. And it's like, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're right. And it unfortunately, took a very violent and tra tragic turn. And you would think, like, man, you know, you want to set the record straight. But again, that's God's judgment, right? We have to entrust God's judgment to him perfectly. Right? You think about Christ, and it said in First Peter, uh, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but instead entrusted himself to the one who judges perfectly. And that's God. So our model is Jesus. We'd have to defend ourselves, of course, but we're not going to really take up arms and create a holy war on the offensive. Right? But that's seemingly what's being done to us in some circles. But we trust in our God and His perfect judgment. Other thoughts on our whirlwind tour of Obadiah? <laughs> Realize it was so short. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Obadiah, and what is it, 3rd John? Yeah, we don't really know much more about Obadiah, right? No. Nope. There's really not much to know I think about. I kind of just skipped over to Jonah. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to do. Yeah, right. Two pages. Well, one page, both sides. Yep. There's eight more books in the Old Testament. Eight more books in the Old Testament? Yeah. Uh, I am hopefully on track to finish the Old Testament uh, before we go down to Louisville for graduation. Yeah. Well, first you have your daughter's got you. You're going to combine? No, yeah, her, hers we're is combine. August. Oh, hers is August. His is May. Oh, I her. And then um, we'll take a break for the summer and come back 
Um, and we'll see. I'm pondering a different thing for the fall. Okay. Let's see. Let's see where that lands us. You'll be a doctor. Dr. Mike. Doctor, Doctor Mike. Mike. Oh, <laughs> we have to change the title. No, no, please don't. Please don't. All right, well, let me pray for us. Father, we, we read, again, uh, language from the Old Testament prophets, and some of it is shocking um, in the sin language, of course, that we see in it, um, in the ways that the people uh, did indeed uh, stiffen their necks against you and rejected you and embraced sin. Uh, Lord, um, in the ways that you time and time again uh, sent all of these things to get their attention and, and soften them, and hopefully that they would return. Lord, and of course, um, in the way you promised judgment and in the ways that judgment was fulfilled um, with the exile of northern and, and southern Israel and even places like Edom. Lord, your sovereignty, sovereignty is something that's very hard for us to understand as mere human beings. Mm. Um, help that to kind of um, accumulate, I guess, in worship of you. Lord, that you are someone that we cannot entirely understand. You are so far above us and your ways are above us. Yes. But yet, um, you care about each one of us. Mm. Uh, and the very hairs on our head, you say, are numbered. And you know our thoughts before they happen. And you know us deeply and intimately. Um, and so help us to balance those two things of, of how far apart you are from us, but also how near you are to us. And Lord, help us to trust. Help us to trust in such a way that, yes, we are called to a standard as, as your people. And may we try to live our lives along that plumb line of the standard of your law, of your holiness. But we're so thankful for your grace, Lord, because we know that we all sin in word and thought and deed. We know that we all fail to love you with all that we have and love others as ourselves. And we know that all of our sins somehow uh, were paid by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we rejoice in that. Mm -hmm. And so help that to be our identity, balance that with our calling, and may you be glorified. And Lord, even as we uh, proclaim the gospel and as we live the gospel, um, we pray that we would do so with the right amount of urgency and clarity and compassion, knowing that that day of the Lord will be terrible. And, and we pray that we would be able to stand before you through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that many more uh, would be able to as well, that you have called to faith. Help us to do what you've called us to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.